Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke, welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. I think that's the bottom line of the science of reading kind of movement is that, you know, there's wisdom and expertise that comes with practice, but we can also be using science to help us identify practices that have the most promise for being able to better support all children. You just heard Dr. Shane Piasta, professor in the Department of Teaching and Learning at The Ohio State University and a faculty fellow at the Crane Center for Early Childhood Research and Policy. Today, Dr. Piasta joins Dr. Liz Brooke in a conversation about how we can best prepare, support, and develop our nation's teachers with accessible and effective professional learning. Here's your host, Dr. Liz Brooke. Thank you for joining us today as we speak with Dr. Shane Piasta, professor in the Department of Teaching and Learning at The Ohio State University and a faculty fellow at the Crane Center for Early Childhood Research and Policy. She was recently awarded the inaugural Carol Connor Mid-Career Award from SSSR, the Internationally Respected Society for the Scientific Study of Reading. And her research focuses on early and emergent literacy skill development and empirical validation of educational practices to support such development, which is remarkably relevant topic for the current national conversation around literacy and science of reading. So welcome, Shane, and thanks for spending some time with me today. I'm so excited to be here. And thanks for making sure the the Ohio State University That's got right. in there. <laughs> and what our listeners may not realize is that Shane and I were both at FCRR, the Florida Center for Reading Research, back in the day. So it's good to be reconnected with you, Shane, and talk to you about your current research. We like to start every episode with how your story started. So what inspired your career in education and literacy specifically? So literacy was always a key element of what I now know to call my home literacy environment. So my mom was a former high school English teacher before she became a preschool teacher and director. And she just loved reading, loved literature, loved poetry. So that was always something that was around. We went to the library regularly. I remember crying when we had to donate books to the library because I didn't want to give up any of my books, <laughs> but I couldn't get any new ones unless I did that. So I went along with it. And my dad wasn't much of a fiction reader or reading for pleasure, but he liked to read to know things. So we always got the local town paper, the county newspaper. He would get magazines like Popular Science. He was constantly putting things together, so he might be reading directions and instructions for something. So I just grew up where, like, as a family, you got up and read the newspaper, and reading was something you did for enjoyment. And I was really lucky that reading was something that came rather easily to me. I remember the first book that I read on my own. It was called The Secret Cat. It's actually still on my bookshelf mm, at home. still in print. I don't know that it's still in print. But it's still on my bookshelf. And so 
I was really motivated to read. I really enjoyed reading. And I was really upset at the idea that this was not the reality for all kids and for all of my friends. And so I really just was interested in, well, how can we do this better? So a second piece of that is that I went to the College of the Holy Cross, which is in Worcester, Mass. Yes, my sister went there. Yes, (laughs) yes. And my advisor was Professor Annette Jenner. And she had an appointment at the college, but also at Haskins Lab. And Mm. she conducted reading research. And so I had opportunities to take seminars and classes with her and really started to dig into this idea that we can use science in order to understand reading processes. And then we can use that also to inform instructional practices. And so Professor Jenner really supported me during my undergraduate career. I actually had opportunity to do an undergraduate research project, which was titled Beginning Reading Instruction in Massachusetts Public Schools, Research Policy and Teachers' Knowledge and Beliefs. And so really, I think ever since then, I've been sort of on this path. Wow. That's fabulous. There's a lot of connections. My mom was also a teacher for 35 years, and that motivated me to get into education. And as you said, our home was just immersed in reading. My dad loves science fiction with your professor at Holy Cross. I didn't realize that your first undergrad, that research project is similar to some of the research you're still focused on today, which is so exciting. Just diving back a little bit to the connection with your mom. I know in May you were a guest on the Read podcast and you told a story about that intersection between research and education where you went to a professional development workshop with your mom. And so was that even before Holy Cross maybe? So did seeing that professional development workshop also influence your desire to learn more? It did. And it wasn't just one workshop. It was many different professional development offerings that I would go with my mom to. And I just kept noticing that sometimes what I was learning in these PD workshops and what these other teachers were learning didn't necessarily align with what I was reading about from my college courses and learning about in terms of how children learn in general or specifically how children learn to read. So I noticed this kind of gap rather early on, and that's really been the mission of my research program since then. Yeah. So it's been a recurring theme on our podcast, actually, that need to more effectively connect what we know from research into the classroom. So (laughs) through your work, what do you see as the most significant barrier or barriers? What's really preventing these evidence-based practices from being implemented? So I think it's really hard. And I don't know that we always really think about how incredible the work that everyone is doing, you know, researchers, practitioners, folks at the systems levels, 
this is really hard to do. So first, I think we need to actually acknowledge that. This is not going to be a super simple, you know, we generate this in research and then it moves into practice, right? We really need that arrow going both ways. And it takes a lot as we're learning from implementation science to be able to do that. I also think that some of the ways that we think about the science of reading are perhaps dichotomous and that in a way that is a barrier to being able to smoothly move between research and practice. So for example, I think there's still this misperception that science of reading is only about decoding and word recognition and phonics. Yes. And so it becomes this like either or, right? Like either you're doing that or you're not, as opposed to recognizing that there are multiple components. And yes, you have to, it is critical and foundational to devote time to supporting skills related to decoding and word recognition. But at the same time, we're having to balance that. I hate to use the term balance because that's a no yes. term right now. <laughs> Could be misinterpreted, yes. yes. But we have to provide opportunities for children to enjoy reading, to be motivated to read, and also focus on the other components that are just as important for reading and reading comprehension. So stopping to think about this as dichotomous, either you are science of reading or you're not, or things like that, it's phonics or whole language. I think moving beyond that would really be helpful in us being able to better leverage evidence-based practices and see those implemented. I also think that there are other dichotomies that restrict our thinking around this. So, for example, I think a lot of folks are looking for a panacea, right? Where yes. it's, There is no one way that is going to work for all children. And so do you want to have an evidence-based curriculum? Yes. Do you want to be using evidence-based materials and evidence-based practices? Yes. But within all of that, we're needing to really individualize and differentiate for the actual children that are in the classroom. And so there's not going to be this magic bullet that is going to immediately affect and improve literacy skills for kids. We really have to think of it as being kind of a system and it has many different pieces. Right. And not only just many different pieces, but to your point, it's not going to be immediate. Not going to be immediate. There's some evidence suggesting that it takes up to two years or even longer for teachers to adopt new practices and implement them and feel efficacious about it such that they continue implementing those practices. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things that I know is tricky that People think of it as a dichotomy, right? It's either phonics or not. And we know there's so much more than just phonics. But also this idea of research proving things, how they impact the classroom teachers. Can you talk a little bit about that concept of research is proving things? Sure. So I kind of have a little leery reaction whenever I hear someone saying research proves. Research is super important for generating evidence that can support 
various approaches and support various theories. But research is really this ongoing iterative process. Every study has its own limitations. Every study is really, if it's a a quantitative piece, most of it is still built on this idea of falsification, which means that we're often testing what's called the null hypothesis. So pretty much we are disproving the null hypothesis and thereby giving support to whatever we think the impact of something would be. So research It is really providing evidence in favor for something or against something. And that really needs to be looked at collectively because each study has its own limitations. So what we are wanting is lots of studies pointing us towards the same answers. But saying something is proven is a little bit too definitive, I think, from the research perspective. Yeah, so that's interesting. And I think the way some of the IES practice guides talk about it is how much evidence, right? So you want to find strategies, to your point, that have studies that the findings have been replicated more than once, right? And studies that have used populations that are similar to the populations you're working with as well. Right. Right. So you can think about how we're able to generalize those results maybe more to our population because they're similar in grade and demographics. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So how can we support teachers, right? We know in only about a quarter of the teacher preparation programs, are they talking about all of the components of reading? And we know that professional learning is just that first step maybe on a journey. So what do you think are some of the other components? You mentioned a little bit about the curriculum should be evidence-based. What do you think about whether it's coaching and leadership? How do they fit into the equation? Yeah, so I think first we have to recognize that teachers are the ones who are actually teaching children to read. I think that's really important because Everything else then can be seen as a support for teachers and or directly for children. So I see and there's evidence suggesting that having a high quality tier one curriculum that is evidence-based or research tested is really important. But of course, each teacher is going to be applying their professional knowledge to that in order to you know, intensify when needed in order to target concepts that maybe some of their students are needing more time or more intensity to really truly understand. So I would say teachers first and foremost, and the preparation and continuing professional learning that we provide for them to increase their own professional knowledge. I do think there's evidence suggesting that curriculum is important, particularly for novice teachers who are still trying to learn to do all of the things in the classroom. There's also some evidence that teachers are more likely to take up a practice and continue a practice if they are able to see that is resulting in changes for their students. So I think time, as we started touching on, is also an important component here where 
you know, we need teachers to have the time to see how this works in their classroom and to see that, oh, yeah, I actually am seeing a difference in kids' outcomes after I've adopted this new strategy or new practice. Same thing with self-efficacy. Again, we have evidence that teachers who feel efficacious, they feel like they are very confident in their reading instruction and, and how they provide that to children, they tend to have better outcomes as well and continue using any newly adopted practices. And then, of course, if we move outside of curriculum and teacher, you have all of those systems factors or contextual factors that we're learning more and more about from implementation science. So these can include things like the climate and culture of the school. Is there collective buy-in to this idea that we're going to try this new strategy or we're going to move to teaching in this way? In a supportive environment where they may not get it right, right out exactly. of the gate, right? Exactly. That growth mindset. And yes. also the teachers in the school can serve as peers and problem solvers and really be able to find the way that this works within the system that they're in and for the students whom they're teaching. So we need to know a lot more about this, but this idea of adaptability to specific contexts is something that is very important within the idea of implementation science. And some folks have started taking this on to kind of figure out, okay, well, where is it between fidelity to a new program or practice, but also being able to be adaptable to fit within a specific context? And then I would add to that leadership really plays a strong role in many of those things. So not only in providing that culture, that supportive climate, but also making sure that things are aligned across the curriculum, right? We don't want to be using an intervention that is completely opposite of what we're teaching in our tier one general right. classroom. And then I think coaches can be another important component. I think there's a lot of work showing that whether coaching is effective depends on various parameters, but we do know that coaching can be helpful. And this might also be a way to encourage teachers to be self-reflective, to see what they're noticing in terms of changes in their students and to feel more confident in a lot of these practices. So it really is this idea of this whole system in making sure that everything's aligned and that teachers feel supported because, again, teachers are the ones who are actually doing this. Yes, I love your focus on teachers, as my audience might know, and I think I've shared with you, Shane, that I was trained in balanced literacy and whole language, and it wasn't until I went back and became a speech pathologist that I actually learned what I needed to know as a first grade teacher. Mm -hmm. So I love that focus on teachers, but the professional learning and knowledge of the teacher is also important. I wonder if you can share some findings from your own work, and I believe it was some of your earlier work with Dr. Carol Connor okay. and colleagues, where you found an interaction between teacher knowledge and practice with an evidence-based curriculum and student achievement. So can you first speak to what 
an interaction means in research and, and what it meant in your specific study. Sure. And that's a tricky term even for other researchers sometimes. So mm -hmm. what an interaction means is that a combination of two factors could be more than two, but let's just do two. A combination of two factors is more meaningful than considering either factor alone. Okay, that's really abstract. Let's talk about that, what that can really mean. So in this particular study, I was very interested in both the roles of teachers' knowledge about language and literacy and the extent to which they were providing evidence-based decoding learning opportunities in their classroom. And so we first looked at, did teacher knowledge by itself predict students' literacy learning? And then did teachers' use of evidence-based decoding practices predict children's learning? And actually, the answer was no. Neither of those on its own actually was associated with kids' literacy learning on some basic word reading measures. Then we considered the interaction because I was thinking to myself, well, you can have knowledge and not actually enact that in your classroom. Right. And you could also enact some of these practices, but perhaps the way it's being enacted is not informed by a great deal of professional content knowledge. And so maybe the adjustments that we would hope to see for certain children or things like that might not be happening. And so that's when we considered the interaction between both of them. And what we found is that for students who had more knowledgeable teachers, more time in that explicit decoding instruction predicted stronger word reading gains. So high knowledge, high use of explicit decoding practices, better outcomes. However, for students who were in classrooms of less knowledgeable teachers, more time in explicit instruction was actually associated with weaker skill gains. So lower knowledge, but more hmm. in explicit decoding instruction, kids were not benefiting from that in the way that they were when they were in a classroom that had a highly knowledgeable teacher who was probably leveraging that knowledge in how that explicit decoding instruction was being enacted. That is such a powerful finding because when I think about, again, using myself as an example, I was left a screener in my desk <laughs> from the prior first grade teacher and it had rhyming on it. And so I was administering this screener, but I was like, why do we care if they can rhyme? That's like nursery school stuff, right? I had no idea about phonological awareness at the time and whatnot. And so I'm just thinking about my own self. I was administering a screener, which is a great concept, right? At the beginning of first grade, let's screen for letter sound knowledge, rhyming, some of these basic skills. But I didn't understand why I was doing that. So similarly, they could have been using this curriculum, but to your point, they didn't necessarily understand how to adapt or personalize mm -hmm. 
or why they might have been focusing on certain things. Exactly. So you didn't see that translate to the higher word reading scores. That's really interesting. Yeah, it was not something we were initially expecting. We thought there'd be both these direct associations. And then we did hypothesize about the interaction and needing both knowledge and practice. But the way that panned out was surprising to us and I think does convey an important message. And we've continued some of this line of work since then. So I've collaborated with Dr. Rachel Schachter, and she looked at associations between knowledge and practice. She used a special kind of analysis called quantile regression. So we are working with Dr. Jessica Logan on this. But she found that really the associations between knowledge and practice were at that high level. So only for teachers who were implementing lots of these evidence-based practices and spending lots of time on literacy, did they see any connections at all with teachers' knowledge? So we're really seeing this idea that it's not just knowledge, it's not just practice. We really have to think about how these things fit together to produce better outcomes for kids. Yeah, I love that, right? It's not just one study. You have to continue to look at this and you're continuing to find that important interaction or focusing on both knowledge and practice. So I believe another area of your research that is near and dear to my heart as a speech language pathologist that is often, I think, left out of the discussions of the science of reading is that importance of early language instruction in pre-K. Again, focusing on it's not just phonics. There's a whole other language component and how that oral language is such a foundational element to later reading ability. So can you point to some of your research that you're doing in this area or what other evidence that we have around the importance of oral language? So most of our predominant theories or models or frameworks of reading do attend to this idea of what might be called meaning-focused skills, what might be called oral language skills, reading for meaning skills. There's a lot of different terms that are used for this, but it actually is in most models, including the simple view of reading and current extensions of that particular model. So that's all upheld and supported by decades and decades of research showing how important language, both lower level language skills like vocabulary and grammar and higher level language and cognitive skills like being able to make inferences and being able to summarize and, you know, employ some comprehension strategies. So that's pretty well established. What's challenging is that we haven't been as successful in determining what we can be doing in classrooms to better support that particular aspect of reading. And there's also evidence showing that language skills are rather stable for children. You can look at, you know, preschool through later years, and there's a lot of stability there, which means as early as we can get in to try to better support these skills, the better. Some of my recent research, and I'm very fortunate to work with 
fabulous collaborators who actually have even more knowledge about language than I do, like Dr. Mindy Bridges and Dr. Tiffany Hogan, to really start thinking about how can we move the needle on this? How can we do a better job of supporting these language or meaning-focused skills within classrooms? So in one project, we have been using the Let's Know curriculum, which was developed out of the IES Reading for Understanding Initiative and the Language and Reading Research Consortium. And we intensified that to make it more appropriate as a tier two intervention for children who were at risk of reading comprehension difficulties due to low language. And so we've been trialing this program where we are just about to have our full eligible third cohort go through this, <laughs> this research project with us. And we're really interested to see if some of these strategies that explicitly focus on these lower and higher language skills that are built into that curriculum can move children's language learning and support their comprehension later down the road. So don't have any findings yet to share from that one, but that's one piece of work All right. that we've been doing. Well, and we did just have Dr. Tiffany Hogan on, and I can't wait to hear the findings from your study. Yeah. And in another project, and these were specifically preschool classrooms, we saw huge variation in the language environments that teachers were providing to the kids in the classroom. So that can include variation in the vocabulary being used, variation in how much teacher versus child talk there was, how responsive teachers were to children during their interactions. And so this really suggests that, you know, maybe we're not preparing teachers as well as we could be in understanding what supports language development for children and how they can be a part of that. And so in another project, we've developed a content knowledge measure of oral language for pre-K through grade three teachers. And so we're continuing mm -hmm. to collect data on that and see whether we can leverage that as a way to perhaps provide targeted professional learning opportunities, perhaps to maybe kind of propel folks who are in the pre-service world to pay more attention to this as part of their classes. And also then, just like with knowledge of reading, to see how this knowledge of language can actually play out in supporting children's language development, along with the practices, of course, that would go along with it. So that's ongoing work that I'm super excited about. Excellent. And then a third project we have was actually an attempt to replicate and extend prior work on classroom factors that may promote language skills. And again, this was specific to preschool. We basically combed the literature to find all of the factors that should be theoretically or had previously empirically been linked to language outcomes. Mm -hmm. But we were specifically looking at links to language gains. And that's important because when you're just looking at outcome, you're not necessarily accounting for the fact that kids are going to start at different language levels. And right. that the what language is the baseline. Exactly. And that the language skills of kids in a classroom, that actually might be kind of 
conflated with the language practices, right? So a lot of children, perhaps from higher socioeconomic status, might be going to preschool programs where there's an emphasis on kind of content knowledge building and things like that and have different opportunities to learn language than children who are not in those types of programs. So in any case, we scoured the literature, we identified all these factors, and we have not been successful in replicating or finding that most of these factors are associated with children's language gains across the preschool year. So it's really caused us to take a hard look, not only at like how we're measuring these things, but are there things we're missing? So the most important and exciting, I think, piece of that work, and again, this was with colleagues, including Dr. Rachel Schachter, who led this qualitative piece, is that we drew on the methodologies of the old beating the odds and effective teachers literature. So like Mike Presley's work and others and looked very closely at classrooms where kids were making more than typical language gains and less than typical language gains. Hmm. And what the qualitative analyses showed is that this concept of generativity, this concept of like, extending ideas and extending communications around that and building vocabulary around that and providing scaffolding and practice opportunities and cognitive challenge and really having children contribute to the language environment as well as contributing their ideas. That was what seemed to differentiate these classrooms. And so we have now created an observation tool that puts that into a metric and are looking whether or not that will actually predict children's language gains across a preschool year. So kind of a bummer for some of the things we thought we were going to be able to find and provide more evidence towards supporting, but it also led to some important directions. And I think also speaks back to the idea of teachers. Teachers are doing things, lots of great things in their classrooms. So instead of this being a one-way arrow of research to practice, why can't we also have that arrow going the other direction where we're starting from what we see happening in classrooms that might be promising and then kind of do the research on that? Absolutely. I think that is fascinating. And the idea that you said about looking to see what's happening and then structuring the research around that and you've mentioned a couple of times today the concept implementation science. Mm-hmm. And can you just give us your thoughts on what is a relatively new field and it's gaining more attention and traction, which is exciting. But can you just share with our listeners what you mean when you talk about implementation science? Of course. So implementation science is a whole field that is actually drawing from multiple different disciplines to understand what factors either help or hinder uptake and implementation of new practices. And I'm using practices really broadly. It could be a single particular practice, but it could also be a new coaching program. So it's important for us to know, and again, this is where I think we sometimes oversimplify things or are just wishful thinkers, 
you know, we're not just going to drop something into a classroom or into a school and all of a sudden, you know, that's taken up and being used in ways and that lead to the outcomes we'd expect. There's a whole process behind how that uptake and adoption and adaptation and implementation happens. And so implementation science is looking at all those things so we can better understand what factors are coming into play and has already identified certain ones. But also it's doing that because as researchers and developers, we need to know what those factors might be so that we can provide supports around that or even alter the intervention or practice in ways that make it more likely that teachers and schools are going to be able to implement those and want to implement those. Right. So going back to almost the first topic of our conversation is how do we make it easier for teachers to connect the research to practice? So I'm really excited about more emphasis being placed on the implementation science. So thanks for sharing that definition with our listeners. I also wanted to highlight another project you worked on, which just hearing all the projects you have going on, I don't know how you find the time, but you contributed to the handbook on the science of early literacy, how you see it it helping add to the that ability to get these findings into the classrooms. Yeah, so I felt very honored to be asked to contribute to the handbook. So there have been prior editions. And these handbooks and the chapters in them really provide a summary of the most up-to-date evidence on either development of early literacy skills or strategies and practices that can support early literacy skills. So they're addressing critical issues in the field. They're written for a broader audience than just researchers. And that was something that the editors made very clear to us. So essentially, I think it's a way of making some of these research findings more accessible to practitioners, to teachers and others. And that's really important because access to research is definitely one of the potential barriers for teachers to be able to use that in their practice. So the current handbook or this most recent edition has chapters on all kinds of different aspects of supporting early literacy. So I wrote one on the science of alphabet instruction. There are other chapters about code-focused skills, but there are also a lot of chapters not only about oral language and meaning-focused skills, but even coaching or professional development and what we know about effective professional development, what we know about supporting diverse learners. So it's just kind of like a one-stop shop that hopefully is easy to read and has really thought about how this translates into practice so that it's a useful tool to practitioners. Yes, I know I have editions of these handbooks behind me as well. And I love the reminder that access to research can often be a barrier if teachers aren't subscribing to journals. So this book is more accessible. And to your point, it is kind of that one-stop 
shop for the most up-to-date research. So again, that's the handbook on the science of early literacy. It's a great reference, whether you're a professor or, you know, teachers leading different PLCs or even as a parent, right? Making it more accessible. You don't have to be a researcher to understand the material in that book. So thank you for contributing to such a powerful resource. I always like to ask our guests one or two questions about the future. So what are you seeing that makes you excited for the future for those classroom teachers who are doing really hard work? And maybe it's connected to kind of this movement now or whatever you're seeing that makes you excited. I'm excited to see the recognition of literacy as a social justice issue and really thinking about what reading skill, why that is so meaningful within our culture and the fact that is something that propels forward progress, right? And that we need to guarantee that for all learners. This idea that this shouldn't be a struggle for so many kids. And if it is, we need to do a better job at it to ensure that all children are successful in early literacy. I'm also really excited about the uptake of the idea that science can help us in this, right? I think that's the bottom line of the science of reading kind of movement Mm -hmm. is that, you know, there's wisdom and expertise that comes with practice but we can also be using science to help us identify practices that have the most promise for being able to better support all children. Yes, the science, the evidence, right? And I also always make sure that this is not something new, right? The movement may feel new, but it's decades and decades of research and science. And because you've talked about the importance of the teachers. And again, as a former first grade teacher, I appreciate the focus on the hard work they're doing. So for any teachers who are listening, what actionable advice, and I know that word gets overused a lot, but literally if there's something they could change, you know, Monday morning in their classroom to enrich either their knowledge or their students' lives, What might be a few things or even just one thing that you would recommend to those teachers? So I think it's really important to be a critical consumer. We need to recognize that teachers are professionals and that evidence-based practice really is supposed to be kind of this meeting of professional expertise along with evidence-based practice and student learning needs. So to be really concrete I think it's beneficial for teachers to pursue a better understanding at the level that they need of literacy research so they can, you know, be aware of what to look for when they are selecting practices or programs and enacting them. So what I'd recommend is there's a really great article by Nell Duke and Nicole Martin. It was published in The Reading Teacher and 2011, and it's called 10 Things Every Literacy Educator Should Know About Research. And I have been using this in pre-service teacher courses, and it just really makes a lot of sense. It walks you through what research can and cannot help with. 
And it's a really easy, understandable read. So I think for something specifically concrete, I'd say take a look at that article and more broadly, be a critical consumer and leverage your professional knowledge, your professional learning when making decisions about materials, curriculum, or even how you're going to approach a lesson for a specific kid in your classroom. Great. Thank you so much. And I love when you find those, I mean, you said 2011, but like when you find those resources that really hit it spot on and are easy to access, I love it. And we'll put the reference to those in our show notes. So I just want to say thank you, Shane, for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule, all this amazing work you're doing. But thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. This was so much fun. I'm really thankful that you asked me. Yes. And thanks to our listeners for joining Shane and me today. I'd love to hear from you. What are the challenges and opportunities you're seeing in our schools as we round out the fall semester? And help us welcome more people to this literacy conversation by leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribing so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. There are so many exciting conversations to look forward to, including Dr. Sharon Vaughn and Dr. Jeannie Wanzik, who will join me for a conversation around adolescent literacy. So I'd love to hear more about what you're experiencing and you can join the conversation on Twitter, or I guess it's now referred to as X, <laughs> by following me at Liz C. Brooke. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the literacy conversation. 